All right, so Philippians chapter 3. And if you haven't pulled it up or turned there yet, um, I'll tell you a quick fact about the Conley household. Um, Jess and my favorite movie series is Oceans 11, 12, and 13. Any, any other Oceans fans? Anyone not seen the Oceans movies? I'm going to, well, appropriately so, that's true. Um, <laughs> anyone over the age of 13 not seen the Oceans movies? Uh, in order, we like 11, 13, 12, then 8, with no disrespect to the, the later edition of Oceans 8. But um, if it's movie night in our house and we can't decide, uh, that, that is always the default. We'll just go back to, to one of the Oceans movies. And on one hand, it's, just, it's my favorite genre of movie. Like, it's lighthearted and funny, and yet there's, like, some mystery, although not after you've seen it, you know, a dozen times, but still, like, the, the, the twists and the intrigues there. On the other hand, I was a film major in college, so there's a fact, um, and, and I love the way that the directors in the movies portray, like, the nonchalance of, of George Clooney's Danny Ocean versus whatever antagonist he was working against. So, like, the whole team is obviously really smart, and gifted, uh, but they're like playful and open-handed and, and just flexible, and they seem unrocked by anything. Meanwhile, all of the antagonists in the movies are like intense and just completely stressed out all the time. And and to these to, to, to today's verses, in each movie, Danny Ocean destroys every one of the antagonists' most closely held identity. Something that happens in every movie. Uh, so in Ocean's Eleven, uh, Andy Garcia is Terry Benedict, and his whole world is wrapped up in his casino and in Julia Roberts. Um, and those are the two things he values most, and by the end, he's lost both. In Ocean's Twelve, Vincent Cassel's Francois Toulure, or the Night Fox, if you will, um, is this conniving but bored rich kid whose identity is wrapped up in being the world's best thief. In Ocean's 13, Al Pacino plays Willie Bank, who's just dirty and manipulative, but his identity is in the number of five diamond hotels that he can open. They're all rich. They all want to be the best. They all want to stop at nothing. And in no way, to be clear, uh, is, is Danny Ocean a Christ figure. Not going to claim that tonight. He was deceitful in his own right, uh, kind of this perverse sense of justice, um, although there was a season when a lot of People worship George Clooney as an idol, so in that sense, uh, he was Christ-like, but not in a good way. Um, and if you haven't seen these in a while, like it's in every movie, through this series of hijinkses and intricate plans, Ocean's Eleven and their crew uh, revealed every one of the antagonist's idol and then causes each antagonist to lose the thing that was most important to him. And in that sense, caused each antagonist to lose his very identity, in addition, frankly, to losing a whole lot of money as well. Um, and, and Al Pacino like perfectly captures this theme at the end of Ocean's 13, which, if you don't remember, um, the Ocean's team has destroyed the opening of what would be a record-breaking fifth five-diamond hotel and destroyed his reputation and destroyed the $5 million payout that Al Pacino's character was going to get from this. And then at this little cherry on top, the very end of the movie, Al Pacino watches this helicopter fly away, carrying all his former five diamond awards, which was literally like $250 million of literal diamonds. And he has this, this blank, like he's looking up, watching this helicopter, and he has this like blank, sad, lost look on his face. And he just goes... My diamonds. And they're gone. 
So there's your movie night for tonight, for one. Um, but this is not a sermon about Oceans 11, 12, or 13. Um, and if you're like me, then like I find those specific places those guys put their identities as pretty odd places. Like I've never thought, you know, I don't want to be as the world's best thief. Um, n- never thought about Five Diamond Hotel and 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 Julia Roberts and casinos and this kind of stuff. But but we all find our identity in something false and fading. And we all set our sights on something. And someone might look at us and say, that thing that you set your identity on is equally silly as the thing that we might look at them and say, man, your whole life's wrapped up in that. And we all set our identity on some false and fading thing. And that thing defines us. And we pursue it, that person or that thing. We pursue it. We strive for it. We find satisfaction in it. If we don't have it, we'll fight like the Dickens to get it back. If we lose it, it ruins us, it dismays us. And, and to quote another well-known movie, that thing or that person, whatever it is, we find it to be just precious to me, precious to us. And so we're in Philippians 3 today. We're starting the, the last half of the book, although y'all dabbled in chapter 4 last week. And we're going to see that false identities and fading accomplishments are not just a reality in modern movies not just in 21st century America. In fact, there's a, there's a reason we can all relate to that sense of loss is because we all have something. But that's not just true today. The, the same thing was true in first century Greco-Roman world as well. And even in Paul's own life, he's really honest in these verses about his own identity. And so Paul was an antagonist in his, in his own right. Um, he opposed early Christianity. We know this, many of us. He murdered followers of Jesus. And in these verses, he shares his own story as an example to us. And, and, and so what we see in his story is poignant to our own story. What we see in his faith and his identity is poignant to our own identity and faith. Because what we see is that the world's false identity and fading accomplishments are nothing compared to our true identity in Jesus and his lasting accomplishment. I'll say that again, So, because if you get nothing else tonight, just walk away with that. The world's false identity and fading accomplishments are nothing compared to our true identity in Jesus and in his lasting accomplishment. So I talked through the verses in kind of two halves, but Paul, Paul introduces this theme right out of the gate. So Philippians 3 verse 1 reads as follows. He says, finally, so he's just wrapped up two chapters of two different lines of thought. One is how his life doesn't matter to him, um, that whether he lives or dies, it's going to be for the sake of Jesus. And then the other theme that we saw is this, this relentless pursuit of humility and holiness and, and dependence on the Spirit. And he, so he's kind of wrapping up that argument by saying, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write this to you or to write the same things to you is no trouble for me, and it is safe for you. All right, that's as far as we're going to go for a minute. Rejoice in what? The Lord. Good job, adults and kiddos. Rejoice in the Lord. And not just kind of in a general God. The Lord was Paul's term for Jesus the Messiah. And so rejoice specifically in the Messiah, Jesus. To do so is safe for you. He says, even though we've just seen for two chapters that this newfound faith is directly opposing the the Roman government. 
there was one Lord, Caesar. We said that over and over again. We have to remember that in context. And so Paul is saying that it is safe for you to, 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 to worship the Lord, even though it is in opposition to what's going on at the time. Because, as we'll see in the next verse, everything in this world is false in faith. And so even if Paul's own take on his own life, quote-unquote, came true, and they were killed in a broader sense, in a beyond-the-horizon, a beyond-the-sun kind of sense, it is safe for these Philippian Christians to worship Jesus as Lord over Caesar. Eternally safe. And so this, this chapter is going to show us similarly that, that our identity in Christ is better than a false identity and any fading accomplishment that any Philippian and even Paul was tempted to base his life on. It's safe for you to trade up is what he's saying. It's safe for us to rejoice in the Lord. So here, here's the first half of the verses, starting in verse 2. Paul says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision. The, the connotation there is we are the true circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself would have reason for confidence in the flesh or have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now I look out, Paul starts Three times in verse 2, look out for people who find their identity in anything but Christ, is what he's saying. He does this in his other New Testament letters sometimes, too. He specifically calls out <coughs> excuse me, people who base their identity on having been circumcised. But we have to realize circumcision was just an outward expression of what was truly a deep-rooted identity. And so Paul's talking about something more than just a physical act. So, so stick with me for a minute, because this is instructive for us, and it's often missed in letters like Paul's. In Philippians 2, we saw that, that in Rome, Caesar was the one Lord. Caesar alone was to be worshipped. And so that led to tons and tons of conflict that historically, if we don't pay attention to, we miss some of Paul's meaning here. There's lots of conflict between the rest of the Roman Empire and Christians, first century Christians, who worshipped God instead of worshipping Caesar. And so if you've been in history books ever, you know, Nero, and there's a Roman fire, and Christians were murdered, and this whole massive conflict arose. But before Christians were populating the Roman Empire, Rome had loads of conflict with God's first covenant people, the Jews, the Israelites. They didn't worship Caesar, they worshiped Yahweh, in the same way that Christians, instead of worshiping Caesar, worshiped the Messiah, Jesus. And eventually, before Jesus walked the earth, the Roman gov government and the Jewish leaders in the Roman Empire reached this, this kind of very tentative compromise that said Jews didn't have to pray to Caesar, but as they worshiped Yahweh, they had to pray for Caesar. 
So again, like Paul writes this in other letters, pray for our, our governors, pray for those who are in authority over us. And so, so, so Jews became the one group in all of the Roman Empire who didn't have to worship Caesar. They were the one group that was accepted from worshiping Caesar. But how is it the Roman government knew who was Jewish? It sounds really strange for today when things are kept more private and that is right in our world and culture. But, but one of the ways that in the Roman Empire people knew who was Jewish was circumcision. It was an outward sign. At the time, people talked more openly about private things than we do today. And so this sounds utterly foreign to us. But at the time, it was common to talk about circumcision. And at the time, it was common at times to check for circumcision. And so some early Christians who came out of the Jewish tradition wanted Christians to be circumcised so that they could kind of be grafted in, not in the, not in the spiritual way that Paul talks about, but grafted into the exemption to say they could continue to worship a different God than the God that the rest of the Roman Empire was following. So it's not just as much an empty rule as some of us have been taught or as we've read into Paul's letters. It wasn't just some empty act, but rather it was an outward expression of something that was deeper. It was a way to, it would have been a way to allow Jewish Christians the same exemption that still Jews have. Now, would there have been problems with that? Absolutely. And would Paul have been absolutely opposed to that? Yes. Because first, it'd be a lie. Right? They, they were not worshiping the God of the Hebrews anymore. They were worshiping the Messiah Hebrews longed for, but there was a distinction between Israelites and Christians. It would have been deceitful, like, like Danny Ocean. Um, the second problem is that they were putting their hope in a false and fading thing. Flesh in the New Testament is often used as like a negative thing, but here he's just saying it's something temporary. You're putting your hope in something fleshly. Everything fleshly about us will one day die. Don't put your hope in something that will fade away. Don't put your hope in something that will one day be gone. But third is that the lie and the resting in the flesh led them to put their hope in a false identity. Because like any religious token today, any religious act, circumcision had for some become just an empty symbol. To, be, to, to merely be circumcised didn't actually prove true faith. Does that make sense? In, in, the, same, in the same way, if, if Paul was writing today, it might be like assuming that someone's a Christian just because they wear a cross necklace. Or maybe even someone's a Christian just because they go to a church event periodically. But similar to people who think that you're a Christian just because you wear a cross necklace or just because you go to church, there were some who pursued circumcision and prided themselves in that outward act. They would say, yeah, obviously I'm this because of this outward symbol. There was lots of identity wrapped up in that symbolic thing. And I can't help but ask if that sounds familiar in our culture today of folks who find their identity in religious things, even though they might not know in their hearts or follow the true God of the universe through his son, Jesus. And so Paul's rebuke is less about an act and more about the identity behind that act. 
You say you care for people, but you treat them like wild dogs, is what he's saying in verse 2. You say you do good, but really you do evil. He's saying you don't just cut the flesh, you mutilate yourself and cause others to be mutilated. Today, Paul might look with the same strength at someone who doesn't know Jesus wearing a cross necklace and say, you think that's a pretty symbol, but in reality, it's strangling in a spiritual way. I wanted to just dwell there because that hypocrisy is the starting point for Paul to share how deeply even he had rested on false identities and fading accomplishments. A British professor N.T. Wright translates these verses, Paul's kind of litany of false and fading identities uh, in a way that draws out the rapid-fire tone really well. It's up here on the screen. It said, mind you, this is N.T. Wright's translation of these verses, I've got good reason to trust in the flesh. If anyone thinks they have reason to trust in the flesh, I've got more. Then he goes into the list. Circumcised on the eighth day. Race, Israelite. Tribe, Benjamin. Descent, Hebrew through and through. Torah observance, a Pharisee. Zealous, I persecuted the church. Official status under the law, blameless. And in the time, that's a pretty good resume. You think you've accomplished anything? I've accomplished more than you, is what Paul is saying. The best Jews, the most religious Jews were circumcised on the eighth day. Benjamin, in addition to just being a fantastic name, was one of the the two tribes of Israel who stayed faithful while all the other tribes turned away from God. And on and on. Blameless here doesn't mean that Paul's saying he's sinless, but rather merely that he had pure status under the Old Testament, Old Covenant law. So by religiosity, by moral accounts, even by lineages, by his literal identity, kind of what Paul's saying is, I won. If this is the Olympics, he got all tens. If this is ledger language, finance language, he had zero marks in the loss column, and all of his marks were in the profit column. It was all gain. But one day, Paul was confronted with the person of Jesus. And Jesus' all-surpassing worth, which that's just a great phrase, his all-surpassing worth, it's in verse 8, we'll read it in a minute. Jesus' all-surpassing worth was so good that everything that was formerly profit and gain is moved into the lost column. It's just gone. Decades of finding his identity in moral, religious, tribal, ethnic superiority. In decades of following rules and doing works and accomplishing things and achieving things, Paul goes, in one fail swoop, it's just worthless. His point is even the best Jew of Jews, the most accomplished person in their religious tradition, had to lose everything that gave him status to find a much truer gain and a better identity. And that's in Jesus's accomplishment more than anything Paul had accomplished. And this is what Paul fleshes out in the rest of these verses. So look at verse eight with me. Indeed, he says, I count everything as loss. Everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, 
I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Rubbish is the, the strongest in the Greek. It's the strongest term for something that you want nothing to do with. The strongest term for refuse, if you will. So you can picture in modern language what he might say. I count everything as rubbish compared to the fact that I may gain Christ in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes from faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I might share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Everything that had been gained is lost. Everything that used to have worth is now worthless. Everything I used to base my righteousness in is fading. All of my former allegiances are gone. Because Jesus and his righteousness and his faithfulness and his worth and his power and simply knowing him and being known by him, Paul says, is that much better. Is this your view of Jesus? But can we honestly claim with Paul that this is true of us? Or rather, do we view following Jesus more about believing certain things about him while at the same time pursuing all of our other accomplishments and the things that we want out of life? Is our view of Jesus one of thinking about God on Sundays and in church settings and maybe in private at times, but otherwise living a normal kind of American dream kind of life? Following Jesus, Paul is saying, is about having our very lives turned upside down. Having our identities and our goal and our every moment of every day conformed to Jesus's pattern. This is a church. In our first few months of existence, we started to summarize this. We didn't create this. We found it, but, but we agree with it. We summarize this as a life of being with Jesus and becoming like Jesus and learning to do what Jesus did. And will we ever be perfect to that? No. But it's never possible if we're clinging to some old identity or other accomplishment, even if we know in our minds that it's false and fading. My diamonds, the thing that is precious to me. If we can't let go of it, there's no possibility of learning to be with Jesus, become like him, and do what he did. So again, Paul's really personal in these verses. And, and, and by the nature of his writing, he invites the Philippians to be personal as well. And so thus he invites us to be personal with him. I'm going to give you just a, a couple moments. We haven't had as much dialogue tonight as, as sometimes we do, but I want to give you just a couple moments to, to sit and then maybe some homework to do this week if you want to, but, but, but to ask yourself, what's your version of Paul's list of identities and accomplishments? Because it's easy to read these verses, and it's in the New Testament. So many of us have heard it at various points, and it's easy to kind of go, oh, yeah, look at Paul. He's, he, all of that other stuff was great, 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 but, it, but it's less pressed on us to take the invitation to go, what would, what would I say? 
What's your version of Paul's list of identity and accomplishments? What's your version of that? What things have you counted as gain? Maybe even what family legacy are you burdened to uphold like Paul was? What act or symbol do you rest in? Or what do you strive for? What do you base your righteousness in? What's precious to you? Could it be that all of this is about you? Could it be that it's all based on some definition of worldly accomplishment or worldly identity like the one that Paul was encouraging first century Philippians to combat rather than saying Caesar is Lord and the Roman way of life is the right way of life, saying rather Messiah Jesus is Lord and there's a different way of life. I'll give you a moment just to ask maybe God to show you what what are some things that will be on my list? Identity, accomplishment, things that are precious, legacy to uphold, acts and symbols. What do I strive for? What do I base my righteousness on? You don't have to, but anybody willing to share anything that God brought to mind? My mind, I, I thought about it slightly different. I guess I was asking God and I was saying, um, what about the opposite, the other side of it, where you feel maybe you don't have any accomplishments, how do you tell that you're really in the identity of Christ, like you've suffered, you've lost something, or it's just you don't have a choice, Yeah. like it becomes like a false humility, mm. um, sort of like I'm depending on God simply because you yeah. You really are not maybe gifted like four hours in all those all these other accomplishments. Yeah. In such an event like yeah. is how do you tell that your your dependence or your identity is yeah. I love that you brought that up because I think that's something that a lot of folks like we look at this list and be like, well I don't have that list, right? I don't I don't I was never a person of persons or that kind of stuff, but rather we feel like we still have our identity wrapped up in this one thing over here. It's easier to see Jesus as better, and yet it's still a story that we hold on to. What else? Anything else come to mind that would be a thing on your list? Families, Families? yeah. I think that the fact that so much has been stripped from me, the things that I can do can become, it's like a lot of women take their families with, as their identity, but like mine have you know, grown and gone, but now I can't do the things that I thought I once could do, or I can't, but I, yeah, so now it's like it becomes things that you can do just can be comfortable for. I don't know. Yeah, you cling to them. Hold them tightly, yeah. Yeah, but then maybe it's for later, but the, what would be the solution for so appreciating like your kids or whatever, but not making them of them? Yeah. Like, it all still is those things. Yeah. But... Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. and in other letters, he even, you know, he banks on his Roman identity to get himself, you know, off the execution block and some of this kind of stuff. So he 
He sees them as blessings. He sees them as gifts. They're part of who he is. But as far as the value statement, uh, the phrase just came to mind. I think, I don't know if we've talked about this, but he sees them as good things, but not God things. He sees them as gifts from a good giver, but they're not, they're not his identity. They're not his utmost anymore. Because then there's some people that would, because it's fresh on my mind, but like athletes and stuff like that, like I've almost heard like in the moment, humility think that people almost saying, well, you shouldn't do that because, you know, because you're... Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? I don't know how to put it in words like self-fulfillment. Like self-fulfillment. Like putting myself in, trying, chasing situations where I can be my true self and mm. like... Like my unique gifts can be used in praise. Yeah. Yeah. Being different than the people around. Hmm. Like holding on to your finding your rights. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that might work for most people, but different. Yeah. <laughs> So we, we all have these things, whether it's an actual thing or a person or a status or a story or a history or a mindset. Or So hardest question, would you be willing to count those and everything else as loss because you see Jesus as that much better than self-fulfillment or than something you're able to do or than a story or status or hope or dream. Because I think we look at these verses and we're like, oh, that was fine for them. Surely God wouldn't ask us to do something that hard today. That's, that's often how these things are taught, are they not? And yet Romans 2, Paul calls this contrast a circumcision of the heart. That's what he calls it. Because dying to self, which is what Paul's talking about, is, is about more than losing a flap of skin, if I can be frank. Um, dying to self is about laying down a whole life. And dying to self is about putting to death a former identity. And dying to self is, is counting every accomplishment as, as nothing. And, and here in verse 3, Paul summarizes this life as a life of one, worshiping God, two, glorying in Christ Jesus. Because again, all of these things are things we take glory in, right? Being able to do this or achieve that or, or find our identity here. Like rather than glorying in any of those things, glory in Christ Jesus. And third, have no confidence in the temporary thing that is going to fade. Is that hard? So I think we teach it as if like, oh, that was for them. It may not be for us. I don't know if that's true anymore. At the end of these verses, verse 10 and 11, Paul says it differently. He talks about his desire to know Jesus, right? Which we would all say, yeah, I desire to know Jesus. Not know about Jesus. We all, we all truly desire to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. But if we're honest, if I can frame it like this, all the things we find our identity in, all the things that we find our accomplishment in, 
feel like little versions of resurrection. Is that fair? They, they make something, if I could just get to that, I'll be better than I am now. Um, if, if money can be my salvation, my identity can be what I put my true satisfaction in. I, we're looking for something to make our life and situation better. We're looking for something to fix this. That's what resurrection is. We want something that will make this a little bit better. But we can't achieve true and lasting resurrection by trying harder or attaining something. And those of us who have attained anything know, like, well, that's, that was great, but now there's something else to move on to. And there's something else to move on. Now there's another identity. Now there's another accomplishment. And so the answer isn't try harder and try harder and try harder. There's one true and lasting path to resurrection, which is the same true and lasting path if you say you want to actually know Jesus better. What's he say in verse 10? Oh, it's gone. He says it's to share in Christ's sufferings and to become like Jesus in his death. How do we fulfill our desire to know Jesus? It's not the way that most of us think. It's not do this, do that, pray more, read more. Share in his suffering become like him in his death. The Christian life is one still, not just in the first century Roman world. The Christian life is still a life of dying to self. Some will literally die. But all of us are still called to lay down our former identity and former accomplishments every day. And it's not because God is mean. It's because he has something that much better for us to pick up. Because after death, comes resurrection in and only in the dying to self the death of fading accomplishments and false identities that will one day die anyway do we find a true resurrection and lasting identity which Paul says is only in Christ and so it's with that that we get to celebrate and declare Jesus' death and resurrection by taking communion. So if you're new with us for this, there's a little clear top, and that'll reveal a bread-like product that feels kind of like death <laughs> in and of itself. But as you, as you pull it out, we ask how Paul tells us we attain that identity in Christ, and Paul's answer is always only by Christ. We can only attain identity in Christ by Christ. It's through his accomplishment on our behalf. Jesus' daily death, then literal death, and Jesus' resurrection and exaltation to his eternal throne, that's what empowers our daily death to everything that's less than him, and that's what empowers our resurrection to a better story, a better identity in Jesus' all-surpassing worth today and forever. So that's what we recall. That's what we declare in communion. So, so this is the body of Christ. Jesus had a status that was even higher than Paul's, and he suffered a literal loss of everything greater than Paul or we will ever lose. And he did so, church, to give us his status one that we could never accomplish on our own. This is his body broken for you.
And as you take the wine or grape juice, it was after Jesus' death that God raised him from the dead. In his death and resurrection, God gave you a true and lasting identity. You are in Christ. You are in Christ, and his all-surpassing worth is better than anything else, and you are covered by his blood, and you are resurrected to a better, fuller, truer life. This is his blood shed for you. Is that good news? Amen. Father, I thank you on behalf of all of us that you have died a death that we deserve, that you laid down all of your glories that Paul talked about in chapter 2, that you humbled yourself more than we'll ever be asked to humble ourselves, that you died in the truest and fullest sense of the term, and that by that, your spirit empowers us to follow your example, to know you in the power of your resurrection, but only through our own death to self and all the other things that vie for our accomplishments and identity and worth. Would you be precious to us, God? And would that change not just a Sunday evening, but every moment of every day of our lives? It's in your son's name that we pray.